Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew 19, and you can find your way to 1927. It's a good place to stick a thumb and, and land. We're returning this morning again to our topic, which we began last week here in Matthew's gospel, the topic of sacrifice and reward in Messiah's kingdom. And all who desire to follow Christ Jesus will make sacrifice. It is part and parcel of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. For some, the sacrifice that God calls upon them to make, that he appoints them to, is right up to the to the sacrifice of their own life, the martyrs. But that's not for most. It doesn't call on most people to make that ultimate sacrifice of giving their own life. But he calls for sacrifice from every single one of his children. You cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ and not make sacrifice. Now, it's a natural thing in the the face of that reality to to sort of wonder whether God recognizes the sacrifices that you're making. Does he know? Does he care? Will he reward these sacrifices in any way? This is a natural sort of line of of questioning. And even if it's not vocalized, the the thoughts occur in our mind. And we're thankful, I'm, I'm thankful for Peter and the disciples because they wondered the same things. They had made great sacrifices for the Lord Jesus Christ and they were going to make even more. And I'm thankful for them that, that they had the courage to ask the Lord some questions about this whole topic of sacrifice and reward. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for that because by Peter vocalizing the questions, the Lord gives him the answers, and by extension, he provides answers to you and I. If Peter hadn't had the courage to, to ask these questions, then we might not have these answers. And the answers that the Lord gives to Peter and, by extension, to us, 2,000 years removed, are, are very encouraging kind of answers. They're, they're instructive answers, particularly so for us as a, as a people of God living here together in community in this local assembly called Foothill Bible Church. We began last week in verse 27 of chapter 19 and, and said that we were going to, to go all the way through verse 16 of chapter 20. Well, you know, of course, we didn't get that far, but uh, Lord willing, we will today. And we said that essentially in this, this rather lengthy section of Scripture, there are two central truths that kind of jump out at us. Two central truths regarding sacrifice and rewards in Messiah's kingdom. 
so that we might respond properly to the sacrifices that he calls upon you and I to make. A good and clear understanding of these things is both, as we said, instructive and encouraging to keep on making the sacrifices that Christ calls upon you to make. Last week, in verses 27 through 29, we looked at the first of those central truths, and it was simply this, that Jesus will not ignore our sacrifices. Jesus will not ignore our sacrifices. It kind of answers that first big question, right? Does he know the sacrifice he has asked me to make? Yes, he knows, and he will not ignore it. This morning, I want to take up with you the the second big central truth here, and it's given to us in in the form of a parable in chapter 20 and verses 1 through 15. It's in a parable, and the parable here relates directly to the topic of rewards, and and that's indicated for us grammatically in verse 1 of chapter 20, where it, it begins with the little word for. You see that? And that indicates for us that that there's an explanation that is being provided here. There's a because kind of statement that he's going to provide for us. And so chapter 20 is is very much part of all the same topic here of sacrifice and reward. Now, this uh, parable is probably uh, reasonably well known to you. But it's also, uh, like many of Jesus' uh, parables here, it's notoriously difficult to interpret. We read it. We understand the basic language. We can probably even get the basic thrust of where it's going. But, but it, is, uh, it is well known to be a parable that has lent itself to many, many uh, varying interpretations throughout the centuries of the Christian church. A number of different understandings. There is general agreement that the parable here regards a, uh, it's a story and it, and it emphasizes God's uh, divine uh, sovereign grace in the distribution of uh, rewards or gifts at the end of the day. Everybody agrees to that. The, uh, the difference of opinion, and I might say a considerable diversity of opinion, Uh, comes in the form of what do the wages actually represent? What is it that he is communicating here? For example, stretching back to the church father, Augustine, who who wrote uh, and lived and and ministered at the end of the 4th and early in the 5th century A.D., uh, he taught that the wages represent eternal life. And that the point of the parable was that that all receive eternal life equally. That was how Augustine understood the parable. Others, for example, Chrysostom, who who ministered in the late 4th century, so, uh, you know, maybe almost 100 years after Augustine, he thought that the parable taught, and this is to quote, it says that strenuous effort in a short time can make up for the shortness of the time one serves. That's how Chrysostom understood the parable. 
Others uh, thought that the parable was given by Jesus here as a warning not to uh, let down your guard in the race, lest you be outrun at the end by someone who had joined the race, uh, you know, later. Kind of a tortoise in the hare approach, I suppose, to understanding this uh, parable. Others uh, uh, thought that the parable taught that... uh, that the grudging service of the Pharisees uh, was being contrasted here with the humble response of the the sinners that Jesus was calling to himself. And that was the point of the parable. Still others thought it was a contrast between uh, the situation between the Jews, who would have been those who, who began in the vineyard at the beginning of the day, and the Gentiles, who were the ones who came in at the very tail end and and were rewarded greatly for it. So they see it as, a, as teaching the truth about Jew and Gentile in the church together. Now, there's, um, there's certain, certainly validity in all of those uh, points. But um, in my opinion, none of them are true to the context in which this parable finds itself, and thus are not the proper interpretation of the parable. So, for various uh, truths, to be sure, that you could locate in other passages of Scripture, but not this passage of Scripture. So, this passage, in its immediate context, we need to take the time and look at. Now, the parable is given to us here, just sort of locating it in context for us. The parable is is given at the conclusion of a discussion that Jesus is having uh, with regard to two topics. One is eternal life and the other is rewards in Messiah's kingdom. And the two questions are are raised in uh, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 16 and running through verse 29. So there are basically two questions that come up. In uh, Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 19, rather, verses 16 through 29. Beyond that, just sort of general observations, you'll notice that verse 30 of uh, chapter 19, it says, Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then if you will slide over to verse 16 of chapter 20, you will see almost identical language. So the last shall be first, and the first Last, that repetition of that statement by Jesus acts like bookends and encompasses the parable and ties the parable to the preceding discussion. So it is tied grammatically here with the, with the word for and it, is, and it is tied here contextually by this opening and closing statement about people who are first and people who are last. This is a good illustration, I think, of um, where chapter breaks are, are uh, not in the right place. So we're very, uh, we're very beholding to chapter breaks. We are, we're thankful for the, the folks who worked those out 500 years ago, and they are exceedingly helpful to us to sort of locate our place. Otherwise, I'd be saying, uh, roll about two-thirds of the way, open your scroll of Matthew, and let's see if we can find ourselves. So it's really nice to be able to say chapter 19. But uh, the problem is that it's just not a really good chapter break. Chapter 19 and the topic under discussion actually flows through all the way to verse 16 of what we know as chapter 20. 
Now, I say there are two questions. Let me just, you know, point them out to you. The first is in verse 16. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? That's the first question. The second question comes in verse 27. Peter said to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? So those are the two questions. What good thing may I do to inherit eternal life? And when he, after Jesus answers that, uh, the disciples and Peter speaking for the disciples says, We've left it all. What about us? What about us? Now, in verse 16, it's the, uh, the rich young ruler. You remember him. And the, and the basic problem with the rich young ruler was that, was that deep down inside, he, he preferred to cling to the kingdoms of this world rather than sacrifice them for the kingdom of the world to come. His deepest commitments lay in this life, not the next. Peter and the twelve have responded to Jesus. They are following Jesus and they have made great earthly sacrifice, as they say. And their question wants to know, uh, with regard to that sacrifice, is that will there be any benefit to come to them because of their sacrifice beyond merely entrance into Messiah's kingdom? Is the sacrifice that they are called upon to make merely grant them access into Messiah's kingdom or is there anything more? Is there anything more? Jesus answers Peter, verses 27 to 29, and he he tells them that their sacrifices will pay an absolutely huge benefit. There are massive rewards that will come to them, both eternally and in this life, right? And that's what we looked at. Eternally, through the the, uh, positions of leadership in the coming messianic kingdom, and then temporally through the present fellowship that they will enjoy together as the community of God, the messianic community of God, living in fellowship and dwelt by the Spirit of God. And that's the message of 27 to 29 of Matthew 19. But Jesus doesn't end it there. He does not end it there. He doesn't leave the, 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 uh, the discussion there. He says the rewards are coming to be sure But this is the additional thing that he adds on, additional information. He says they're not on the basis in which you might expect them to come. Peter, there will be massive reward, but it's not going to come the way you expect it to come. There will be great reward. But the rewards are going to be distributed, not in the way that conforms to the normal expectations or predictions based upon how you understand sacrifice and reward in this world, in this present age. Messiah does his math differently. He does his math differently. In Messiah's kingdom, Peter and us need to be ready for a surprise. There's a surprise coming. And in fact, it's a, it's a shocking surprise when we think about how we use human standards to measure the fairness factor, the, uh, the result of hard work, the sacrifice that people make, and the topic of rewards. It's going to flip the world upside down. Let me read this text for you, and that'll give us a good running start at it. Verse 16. Then someone came to him 
Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. And then they said, Well then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out. And found others standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Then those hired first came. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? 
take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. Second central truth found here in really 1930 through 2016, so inside those brackets. And it's simply this. Jesus dispenses rewards according to our faithfulness. According to our faithfulness. Let me develop this with you. Jesus has just spoken, right, in verses 27 to 29 about the the primacy of the apostles in the age to come. And now, in, in verse 30 here, he, he tempers the promise that he has given them by, by the, the additional teaching of what many now call the, the great reversal, in verse 30. Called the great reversal. And, and the essence here of, of verse 30, and this great uh, reversal here, is that not all those who are primary in this age will remain so in the age to come. And not all those who appear to to be insignificant in this age will remain insignificant in the age to come. So there is going to be a great reversal when Messiah's kingdom comes. Now, how how does this this reversal of expectations uh, relate to to the parable here? Who are the first that will be last? Who are the last that will be first in the program of rewards? A little background. This is an agricultural parable. There are very few agricultural workers here in our fellowship. So how about a little agricultural background for all us city slickers, right? So it's simply this. It's an agricultural story that is very common to the people of that day. There's a wealthy landowner. He owns a rather large vineyard. The grapes come in in the fall, and they tend to come in all at one time. Therefore, in order to to bring in his grape harvest, this wealthy landowner would hire day laborers to come and to gather the harvest. These day laborers would work alongside of his household slaves and to, and to get the crop in before it spoils in the fields. Now, as a day laborer, you did not have the financial security that would come to a slave who was attached to the landowner's household. You live literally hand to mouth. There were no protections for you at all. You were, you were dependent upon wealthy landowners hiring you to do a task. The method by which they'd hire you was simply this. You would go to the, to the square of the village or town that you lived in, the marketplace, early before the sun came up, and you would wait. While there, uh, the, the uh, waiting, then the, the wealthy landowners would come and they would say, I'll take you and you and you and you. And they would negotiate a wage that they would pay you to, to do a day's labor, manual labor. 
The standard wage was a denarius for a day's work. A day's work in those days was essentially sunup to sunset, roughly 12 hours. And it would correspond essentially to 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Okay? So that's the basic deal. Now, the parable here that Jesus gives to us, it breaks down into two sections for us. Verses 1 through 7, which is uh, I'm calling the hiring. And then verses 8 through 15, which is the payment. So there's the hiring and there's the payment. And the focus of the parable lies in those two sections. Now, there is a punch to the parable. And the punch to the parable is that it, that it reverses common expectation. It forces us to examine why it is that we so easily identify with who? Yeah, those hired first. Okay? You read it, and those hired first appeal to you. Because that's how we generally Look at life. That's how we value things, right? They started first, and as they will later say, hey, listen, we did all the hard work. We were in the hot sun all day long. What about us, right? So that's the punch to the parable. All parables have a punch to them, and the punch is the the flip. The point of the parable relates to the punch, and it's it's the main message of the parable, and the main message is found in verse 7. The main message is found in verse 7. They said to him, because no one hired us. Okay? This fifth group of laborers have not, uh, they've been standing, it says, idle in the marketplace all day long. Why? Verse 7, because no one hired us. Meaning they had not been given an opportunity to work. They had not been given an opportunity to work. Once they received the opportunity to work, they went into the vineyard, they worked diligently, they worked faithfully, and at the end, they are rewarded generously. And the reward they receive is not based on their productivity, it's not based on their longevity, it is based in accordance with their faithfulness. They are faithful with the opportunity once it presents itself to them. And that's the big point. So now, Here we go. The wealthy landowner, right? The wealthy vineyard. He represents God. He is God. He goes into the marketplace. He hires the day workers here, right? For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into the vineyard. So far, so good, right? You go out there, you find the workers, you say, hey, I've got... Great crop that needs to be brought in. If you'll work for me to bring in the great crop, I will pay you the going market wage. One denarius. And they go, great. So far, so good. Then he goes back to the marketplace. Verse 3, about the third hour, that would be about 9 a.m., and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. And he went out again about the sixth, which would be noontime, and the ninth, which would be 3 p.m., and he did the same thing. So he goes back out into the marketplace three more times, and he hires additional laborers, never promising them anything other than he will do what is right by them. He will do what is right by them. Now, why did he go back into the marketplace? We're not sure. 
doesn't say. It's a story. Okay? Everything doesn't have to have an explanation. But if you like an explanation, maybe the sun is really hot that day and the grape crops ripening faster than they can handle. I don't know. But whatever the reason is, he is back in the marketplace hiring additional workers. And he promises them to do by them whatever is right. So what would be right? Well, in the mind of of, uh, the people of that day, what would be right would be a fractional share of a denarius, right? If you work half a day, you get a half a day's wage. You work two-thirds of a day, you get two-thirds of a day's wage and, and so forth. And so that seems to be the understanding that's going on under here, but it's not all that important to the story. So Jesus passes over it quickly. Now, verse 5, or 11, excuse me, verse 6. Now about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock, about the 11th. These are are the folks that show up at the 11th hour, right? You've heard that expression? This is it, okay? Thanks for coming. Thanks for showing up at the 11th hour. So they arrive at 5 o'clock. Well, actually, he goes back into the marketplace, it better said, at 5 o'clock, and he finds other people, verse 6, standing around. And he says to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? Now, we should not understand the word idle here as lazy. What we should understand is unemployed. Why are you standing in the marketplace unemployed? Answer? Nobody offered us a job. Nobody offered to hire us. Why? Again, we're not sure. Maybe there were just so many workers looking for work that day that that, that they couldn't all be absorbed in the marketplace. Maybe. Or maybe it's because uh, they're not very appealing in the eyes of the wealthy landowners. They made selection on some basis, and whatever the basis they chose, they, they overlooked these people. These people were last in the estimation of the world. These are the last ones. These are the, the ones that don't get hired. Now, he hires them, right? The wealthy landowner hires them. He said to them, verse 7, you go into the vineyard too. Why did he hire them? Again, I don't know. Maybe the crop is, again, so big that they need one more push at the last you know, hour to get it in. Maybe. But I'm, I'm uh, thinking that it's more than that. I think based on the way that he responds to them, the way he, he pays them, the way he rewards them, that there's more to do here with generosity and compassion than there is with a market wage for a job done. But in any case... He says to them, go into the field, and they go, and they go. So they're hired. Now it's time to pay, right? Verse 8, it's payment time. So when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group, to the first, the, Deuter- the law of Moses recorded in Deuteronomy 24 in verses 14 to 15, Leviticus 19, 13. It's very, very clear that the, the wages of a day laborer are to be paid to him at the end of the day. You're not to, to hold it back. You're to pay him because why? Well, he lives hand to mouth. He needs his wage. And so 
They call the workers. The, the landowner instructs his foreman. He says, pay them. All very common. Except the way that Jesus sets up this story here, you're beginning to sense that, wait a minute. There's something really uncommon going on here. And that is that the normal procedure would be to pay the people who started first and send them on their way and then work your way down the ranks. But instead, the payment schedule is flipped. The payment schedule is flipped and and he says, um, I want you to pay them, verse 8, beginning with the last group to the first. So there's a reversal of the payment schedule. Now think with me for a minute. If hiring extra workers at the 11th hour is an act of generosity, what is paying 12 times the prevailing wage to those people? That's, uh, that's over-the-top generosity, don't you think? That, that's um, poor business practice, one might say. You, you don't stay in business long by overpaying your employees you know, 12 times the prevailing wage. So this is not given to us to instruct us in the proper economics how to set up a business. This is driving a point. And Jesus is in set this story up in order to drive this point home. He is ridiculously generous. And it sets up the confrontation of verse 10. When those hired first came, now they're all standing around, right? And they see the, those hired at the 11th hour get a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. In perfect tense verb in the Greek, they continually grumbled. They continually grumbled. They complained to each other and to the landowner. He ignites a firestorm by his payment practice. And look what they say to him. Verse 12. These men, these men have worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Now, let's be honest. You can identify. Right? You can identify. It's not, come on, fair. It's not fair. This first group, they've they've done all the hard work. They've made immense sacrifice. Immense sacrifice. And they think they're being treated very unfairly. Notice that they say uh, uh, that the landowner has made them equal to us, not that he has made the last workers, right, uh, equal to the first workers. See how they even, even the way they express it, it's just screaming. It's not fair. It's not fair. You're supposed to feel that way. I mean, you're not supposed to feel that way, but, but you do feel that way. And, and, the, and the parable is constructed to draw that out. That's what makes it memorable. That's what makes it powerful. 
is it engages you. So the landowner responds to them, right? He responds to them. He answers and said to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. Take what is yours and go. He's unmoved. He is unmoved. Neither neither the passion of their complaint nor the power of their logic affects him in the slightest. He says, I have dealt with you justly. You agreed with me for a denarius. I have paid you what you have agreed to. Take your money and go. Take your money and go. But, he says, but for these other people, if I decide to be generous with them, I am well within my rights to be generous. Well within my rights. Beyond that, he he puts his finger on the real reason why they're complaining to begin with. Verse 15. Is your eye envious because I am, and it's interesting here, the, the Greek word, it's translated in the New American Standard as generous. It's actually the word that's used over in verse 16, and it's the word that means Uh, Or verse 17, rather, good, right? When he says, uh, what good thing may I do? And he says, there's only one who is good. It's the same word. Are you envious because I am good? Don't you hate it when the scriptures confront you and get to the heart of the matter? So, verse 16, conclusion. So, the last shall be first and the first last. Have a nice day. Thanks for coming. Peter, you asked me a question. Your question was, what then will there be for us? We've made great sacrifice. Jesus says, great reward, Peter. Great reward. But remember something. I want you to remember this, Peter, that there are going to be other people rewarded as well. And and the reward they receive may not seem to you to be commensurate with the sacrifice they've made or the effort they have exerted. Well, you measured by human standards, Peter, of, of first and last, there are going to be people who are going to be rewarded by Messiah in his kingdom who don't draw your gaze at all. They don't even hit your radar screen. But God rewards. And he rewards with great compassion, great generosity. Big idea? Understand and rejoice in this. Our God is sovereignly gracious and rewards according to his purposes. Listen, Jesus will not ignore our sacrifices. 
But Jesus dispenses the rewards in a way that's not exactly the way we would probably do it. He does it based on faithfulness. Faithfulness. So how do I apply this? What do we do with this? Let me suggest to you some applications. How about this one? Number one, being first, that is prominent, as a Christian in this life does not mean that you will be first in the next. Being a big shot here, right? B-M-O-C. So my mother used to call it. Big man on campus, right? Being prominent in this life does not mean you will be prominent in the next. That should promote humility. That should promote humility in this life. Secondly, faithfulness in little things often unnoticed things will be greatly rewarded in the next life. Greatly rewarded. Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 10, he who is faithful in a little will be faithful in much. The little things draw God's attention. Here's a third. We are in for a surprise if we think God owes us greater rewards because we have been a Christian for a long time or we have done great things for him. If that's our attitude and approach towards God, we are in for a gigantic surprise at the great reversal. Should one serve Christ for a long life? Yes. Should one attempt great things for God? Yes. Because we're trying to earn great rewards? No. Out of love for the Savior. And he will take care of the rewards. Fourth, that occurs to me, And I think it's a particular problem in the church today, the church at large, and that is that we we need to resist hero worship. We need to resist hero worship and the resulting flip side of hero worship, which is disdain for the nobodies in Christian service. Hero worship, you know, that's um, that's the internet pastors. That's the... the, um, the conference speakers, that's the book writers. That's the people who everybody is drawn to and attracted to. And then when one of them falls, as has happened recently to a well-known pastor in Seattle, Christianity gets a black eye. It gets a black eye. There are lots and lots and lots of nobodies. Did you know that? Faithful, faithful people, men and women, in service of the Messiah's kingdom, that will never make it in terms of human acclaim 
often their service will go virtually unnoticed. Except by God. Except by God. So we need to watch our attitudes. We need to watch our attitudes. Okay? We need to not look down on people or elevate people. There's another one, number five. We have no choice in our giftedness. Isn't that right? No choice in our giftedness. No choice in our abilities. They are the gift of God. But, here is where the rubber meets the road. We do have a choice in how we use the opportunities that are provided to us. Your giftedness is just that. It is a gift of God. Your opportunities lie in your hand. What will you do about it? What will you do with the opportunity given to you by God? And it is the use of those opportunities that will figure greatly into the rewards you receive in Messiah's kingdom. And finally, number six, a good God, a good God ultimately determines the rewards according to his sovereign will, according to his sovereign will. So we uh, sort of turn these ideas around in our minds in the days to come this week. May the Spirit of God use them to to promote within us a, a, a sort of a an introspection, introspection that, that results in a, in a better understanding of who we are together as a body and how we we need each other. Whether God has given you prominence here. Or you are obscure there. We're needed together. Christ will take care of the rewards. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all the faithful people. Week in and week out, day in and day out. Or part of this body. Serving Christ sacrificing to serve Christ. And often that sacrifice goes unknown by, except perhaps maybe a few. People who serve in our nurseries among the little ones. Those who visit shut-ins to encourage them. Those who cook meals to bring them. Those who visit hospital situations those who teach those who bring the gospel to a neighbor along with a pot of soup just a myriad of things father you tell us none of it goes unnoticed and that the reckoning is not in this life And then when the reckoning finally comes, it's not going to be the way we reckon things in this life. Father, help us to see it 
Help us to love it. Help us to embrace it. And may you continue to enable us to excel even still more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.